Welcome to Menu Stories, a series where we get to know the stories about the people and restaurants behind the food we love. This is our podcast, and I'm your host, Rebecca Goberstein. We are back from a winter hiatus that went a little longer than usual because I've been on maternity leave. My husband and I were happy to meet our first child, a baby girl, in December, and it's been a crazy wonderful ride so far, but I'll spare you all the details. So with that, the Menu Stories team is excited to be back, and today we have two episodes to share. This episode 49 is the first. We hear a live recording of a chef's panel that Menu Stories was lucky enough to host last summer with Yelp at their beautiful headquarters in downtown San Francisco. The panel discussed the theme, surviving and thriving as Bay Area restaurateurs. The idea for the panel came out of our episode with AQ in a conversation with Chef Mark Lieberman and Yelp was gracious enough to host us. Along with Chef Mark Lieberman included veteran chefs like Suzette Gresham of the two Michelin-starred Aquarello, you'll meet her in our next episode, and newcomers to the San Francisco food scene like Fernay McPherson of Mini Bells, who was named a rising star chef by the San Francisco Chronicle just last year. Special thanks to Yelp for providing the audio recording of the event and for hosting us. Let's have a listen. All right. I think we're ready. I lost a couple chefs in the bathroom, but I think they're coming. Just kidding. Um, thank you guys so much for coming. For all of you who have been to a couple of these events, great to see your faces again. For those of you who haven't, my name is Emily Washkovic. I'm a manager of local business outreach here at Yelp. So I travel predominantly around the West Coast speaking at conferences, trade shows, conventions, all about the free tools for business owners on our platform. And this year we actually decided to do some localized community building. And one of the communities that we're working on is the restaurant community here in San Francisco. So I've been hosting a ton of events about every three to four weeks, some related to Yelp and the tools that you can use, some like tonight, not really at all, just about the industry rather. And so I'm um, really excited to have you all in the building, really excited to have this great panel together tonight. Um, and I'll kick it over shortly here, but I do want to let you all know that if you have ideas for topics that you'd like to learn about or industry topics and speakers that you'd like me to get for these events, all great information that I'd love to have. So feel free to reach out to me, email me, um, any of those invites that you're getting from my email address, you should be able to respond to them. Otherwise, you can email bizoutreach at yelp.com, B-I-Z as in zebra, outreach at yelp.com, and I'll get back to you and we can go from there. But without further ado, I'll hand it over to Rebecca here to kick it off. And thank you guys so much for joining us. So as Emily shared, my name is Rebecca Goberstein. I am the host and creator of Menu Stories. Um, does anybody know what Menu Stories is? <laughs> yes, you guys know. <laughs> you don't count. Um, <laughs> so Menu Stories is a podcast, and we're also, um, we also have a multimedia collection of stories that we tell in addition to the podcast. And we really tell um, and focus on the stories about people behind the food that we all love and that some of us make. So the origin of Menu Stories, it started really um, completely by accident. I used to have a startup, and it was focused on the restaurant and food world. And as a way to um, kind of add to the marketing, uh, we thought of doing a podcast to help kind of go beyond um, what we were doing initially. The podcast uh, started to do well. The startup did not. Uh, <laughs> that died. But the podcast ended up being really uh, therapeutic for me personally. It was a really inspiring way to hear you know, these really passionate 
entrepreneurs, really, and restaurant, um, restaurant owners share their stories about how they came up with their ideas, how they um, fought from becoming, you know, being a dishwasher um, to you know, going all the way to becoming the executive chef of their, of their own restaurant. And we heard those kind of stories over and over again. So selfishly, it was therapeutic for me. Um, and then the restaurant community seemed to really want to share their stories. There wasn't really a format for them to talk about this. Most of the press that restaurants get is focused on the food they make, the um, you know, popularity of their restaurant. It's not often about their own um, origin stories or, or why they do what they do. So that's sort of where that came from. And, uh, and so we've now been doing this for two years and we've published 47 stories. Um, let's see, we've got, I think, 12,000, or sorry, uh, um, thousands of people have listened to the stories over 12,000 times from all around the globe. So it's pretty cool that our stories, just this area, have been shared uh, that widely. And so many people are focused on this community because of the caliber of uh, food that is made here, of course, and um, the, the caliber of chefs that are here, like the ones that are on the panel tonight. So the idea for this panel actually came from Chef Mark Lieberman. And so that's why he's our special guest tonight. Um, so I'll turn it over to him shortly to share a little bit about um, what he's working on now. But uh, the idea came from the episode that we did together when he was at AQ. And we started really having this great discussion about the challenges that the San Francisco restaurant community in particular has in terms of the hyper-competitiveness that we see and, um, you know, the the volume of restaurants that we have compared to other cities. And we realized, and uh, Mark had this idea, to bring the community together and actually have this discussion. So when Yelp invited us to come here, we realized that's, so I'll turn it over, share a few words, and then we'll get started. Is that better? That's way better. Um, so yeah, I'm currently not working, um, which is, like I said, surreal for always being behind a stove and not having a stove to cook at. Other than at home, it's a little different. Um, so I'm working on a new project in the Bay Area. I'm not sure where it's going to be yet. Um, but I'm still continuing to do a brick and mortar idea, even though that there's several challenges in San Francisco and in the Bay Area. Um, but it's something that I feel extremely passionate about. It's something that I going to deter me from doing something that I love. And um, so for the rest of the, for the audience, maybe everyone can introduce themselves and share briefly kind of what you're working on now or we've been working on for 28 years of our cases. <laughs> uh, good evening. My name is Suzette Gresham. I'm the chef and co-owner of Ocarello Restaurant here in San Francisco as well as the sister restaurant 1760. Uh, we are in our 28th year. Um, uh, you know, I have the distinction of being a two-star Michelin restaurant, which is an honor for a woman, especially there's only three of us in the United States. Um, we are still proud to be here. We think that we're doing a pretty good job and want to look forward to the future. Um, I'm very invested in all of these topics, and Rebecca was kind enough to send us a few questions in advance. To me, um, Emily, this is a series in the making right here. Just want you to know. So, um, be because to do these topics justice is not just an hour conversation. There's a lot of concern in San Francisco on these topics from both sides, uh, the consumer as well as us who provide that service. So that's kind of a weird introduction, but thank you. <laughs> Hi, my name is Yuka Ioroi. My husband, who's sitting right over here, he's the executive chef of the restaurant we own together called Cassava in Outer Richmond. 
Uh, we just celebrated our uh, fifth year anniversary in March. At the same time, we completely ran out of money a week later of our fifth anniversary, and we ran a, a GoFundMe campaign that raised um, 51000 in 21 days. Um, so that's the one thing that, that we'll be sharing, and then, you know, like um, a type of a different way of reaching that kind of funding and then building that kind of clientele. And then that's the kind of things that we would love to share. Uh, we do face crazy, crazy climate in San Francisco, but you know, I think there are ways that we can all put our heads together and kind of work through. And I would love that uh, this forum to be, you know, for source for all of our colleagues. Thank you. Hi, my name is Renee McPherson. I am chef and owner of Mini Bell Soul Movement. Mini Bells is a corporate and special event catering business here in San Francisco. We specialize in Southern comfort food. We are one of the La Cocina entrepreneurs. Um, I've been doing business since 2008 and formally 2011 when I joined La Cocina. I started in 2008 in the Fillmore, which is the neighborhood that I grew up in here in San Francisco. I started with catering small community events and teaching youth cooking classes. And the business has grown to catering for pretty big companies here in San Francisco. So we are actively looking for brick and mortar space. We're not there yet, but um, I still want to go for it, you know, being that we are in some scary times in this food world, but I'm still ready to do it. And hopefully we'll be in the field more soon. Also a rising star chef this year. Thank you. <laughs> we are in great company here. Um, so we'll get started with some of the questions. We'll start with an easy one. Uh, how would you describe what's happening right now in San Francisco's restaurant world? <laughs> Just wait for the other ones. <laughs> Mark, would you like to start? Sure, I'll take that one. Um, that is definitely not an easy question to tackle. Um, I think there's lots of factors that are happening. I don't think not only in San Francisco, but across major cities, Chicago, New York. Um, I mean, a lot of things that are happening here, though, it's a lot of the rent that is affecting a lot of the restaurants. Um, the labor workforce, I think, is probably the biggest one that affected AQ and was kind of what made us decide to close, was that our space was so big that it required such a large amount of labor. And at some point, I can't keep passing that on to the consumer, but I also can't keep absorbing it and not making any money. And so that was the biggest factor when we closed AQ. It wasn't the rent, because we were kind of like in this gritty part of San Francisco, that the rent was actually pretty good. Um, but our labor, like, we want to pay people what they deserve. We want people to get insurance. We want people to be compensated for. But at the same time, like, it's, it's very challenging. And that, to me, is one of the biggest things I think we need to tackle within the San Francisco restaurant community is the labor. And I, it's not an easy topic to discuss because I feel like cooks and servers and bartenders should make what they should be making. It, no one should be making minimum wage. Everyone works really hard. It's not an easy job. Um, but at the same time, it's... It's very difficult to, uh, to make money in a restaurant because of that. As you know, Chef Lieberman mentioned, um, the labor is, is tough. Um, if your rent was $1,500 a month and it became $2,000 and you're getting $14 an hour, how do you keep the staff? You know, so that is definitely like the housing crisis is definitely affecting us. Um, also, as a trend, I feel like I see like a two really... Um, a big trend towards fast casual and then also ultra high end, you know, tasting menu only. Like, you know, very notably for sushi, you know, industry, you know, everything $300 per person. You know, so like, how do you, 
again, you know, like if if your rent was fifteen hundred dollars and then your rent just became two thousand, twenty five hundred, three thousand dollars, and you're making maybe four thousand dollars a month, which shouldn't be that bad. But how do you go out to eat? You know what I mean? Um, so we noticed that our um, lunch kind of dipped a little bit because when you when you're making the same amount of money and you you have to pay $500 more, what do you cut out? You you go out to eat a little less, you know? But then our vision is that um, my husband comes from a fine dining background, but we want to keep this um, well-prepared food with good ingredients at affordable, approachable setting. So, I, you know, we really don't want to go over, you know, $60 per person during dinner, including beverage. You know, um, we have a four-course uh, four tasting menu that we do, um, every night for $42 and a company, accompanying, um, pairing for $28. So together, you know, they'll just spend $70 and they have a great time, you know, now and a half or so. And you can still turn twice, three times. And that's still like approachable, you know, good fine dining that's more relaxed. You don't have to spend $300. Um, but I do feel little, little concerned, you know, that, the dining is kind of becoming for the ultra rich that, you know, you can all, yeah, you know, oh, if you want to go out to eat, you know, oh, yeah, yeah, and I'm going to spend, you know, $250, $300 a night. And then how do you, you know, like, you can't just have that, like, we need middle range restaurant. So I think as an industry, we really have to kind of figure out how um, that that can thrive. It's, it's a really tough situation that we're in, but, you know, like with... Um, you know, like the pop-up is coming up, like what Chef Renee is doing. And then, um, I don't know, we just need a different ways of uh, approaching businesses. Hopefully I answer the questions. I don't know, I kind of rumbled on, but. <laughs> I mean, um, no, I think both of you touched on um, a lot of different things that we'll definitely dive into more. Um, so, I mean, and both of you mentioned, uh, mentioned team. Mm -hmm. So one thing that we've heard very consistently that, um, that restaurateurs struggle with is the ability to keep a team. Um, and Suzette, I know that you have some um, experience and some um, ideas around how to how to actually maintain a really high quality staff and kind of develop the develop a team that you can really rely on. Um, so, is there is there anything you can share that you found works and and helps? go beyond just the paycheck, which is obviously a very important part of that, but is there anything else that people have at their disposal to do that? Yes, I, I think you're right, <clears throat> Rebecca, definitely. And, and adding on to what both my um, panelists here have said, money's first and foremost. If you can't afford to pay your bills, you don't really want to cook and you don't want to stay here, which is what we're experiencing where cooks are leaving in droves. They can't afford to live here. Um, and they don't want to cook. What, what breaks my heart is that they think it's the industry's fault. They don't want to cook anymore because they just can't see how they're going to. Uh, and if you're really a passionate person, you have already probably sacrificed a great deal in your life just to cook. Whether you have to buy knives and pay rent or have three roommates or you don't have a car or um, you don't have any health coverage or you simply don't dine out yourself or you don't travel, you don't have a savings account, you usually don't have a dental plan, you don't, I mean, it, the list goes on and on. So what can I offer? So I try to pay decent wages, but I also try to give them what I call intrinsic value. Intrinsic value is I check in with you. I come and talk to you and say, how's the plan going? What's the progress plan? Sometimes it's very parental and that they're so consumed with their day-to-day -day life that they don't know what the plan is for more than what they can just see. Next week, next month, I mean, it's already foreign to think about where they're going to be one year from the day that we're speaking. Um, secondarily, I offer to buy them books. I'm pro-active education, very pro. 
I offer to take them on field trips. I offer to support them if they go watch Jeremiah Tower's new movie, The Last Magnificent. I offer to pay if they go to eat at uh, B Patisserie, which is keeping another business going and also showing the patisserie that we don't do in our facility. Um, I offer to let them tell me what they want. If they find an educational program online, if they find a way to increase their knowledge base in some manner, I am all ears. So it's really in their minds having that one-to-one -one and the mentorship, something that the cooks always say they want, but I'm not sure they realize when they line, sign up with me what mentorship they're going to get because I'm like your mom on steroids, and um, I tell you the things you usually don't want to hear, and um, I remind you, and I nag. So, um, But it, it's important if you really want to grow a person. And I think at this point in my career, it's probably almost as important to me to grow people as it is to make food. Um, it's my way of paying back. Um, so it's, it's uh, thank you. I'm, I'm not doing enough. I'm trying to figure out how to do more. Um, and, you know, in this politically correct climate, it's really hard to be all do all. I'm not supposed to buy from certain vendors. I'm not supposed to have certain things on my menu. I'm not supposed to be using certain things. And it just gets to be ridiculous. And now we're even talking about, you know, in my, the, the first question actually said about the, the restaurant scene. Let me tell you that it used to be my dining room was a different feel even. Um, and I don't want to tag the tech industry for absolutely every ill, but I have to say, with the advent of social media, as well, please don't let the walls here Yelp fall in on me, but um, sorry, um, it, 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 just let me paint a quick picture for you. If I had a guest who came in and sat down and there was a discrepancy or an issue or they weren't happy, my staff is trained to immediately pick up on that, whether it's the waiter, the psalm, or my maitre d' partner. And they would engage, they'd have a conversation, they'd ask them what was wrong, and then we'd try to make it right. Now, someone comes in, they sit down at two-top, they're on their phones the whole time, they don't discuss anything between themselves, let alone my waiter, my psalm, my maitre d'. Something may go wrong, it's unbeknownst to me. We ask, how was it? They say, fine. They go home and get on, bleep, some other company. Um, and they began to tear us a new asshole, basically. And we never had a chance to make it right. You never gave us that opportunity. And if I go back on Yelp and I say anything, I'm sour grapes. I'm just, so I don't. I take it and swallow. I don't like that. I really don't like that. But I think if I'm going to sit here and say about the negative side that I have to have part of the solution. So what I'm trying to figure out is how to make Yelp and any other social media responsible. How to give those people who have something to say a voice. Thank you. Good. Let's hear it but how to make it more equitable and fair for the people who read it and for those of us who suffer by this, you know, one-sided judgment. Um, because I've spent my lifetime at this restaurant. I put my house up when I got my restaurant. I had babies in my restaurant. So for you to sit there and so cavalier, just take me out and I don't get to talk back? Come on, that's not fair. Um, so... <laughs> I, I don't mean to sit here and say it's wrong way, but I do want a better way. That's why I'm, I really want to be part of whatever. In full transparency, your daughter actually works here, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure she gets a lot of ideas from you as well. <laughs> Fernay, what about you? I mean, you're, you're um, quote, new to this yes. world, although you've been doing this, you said, since 2008. Um, yeah, and so, so since you are yet to move into your first brick and mortar, um, is team an issue for you, or is there another challenge that um, that you you find more pressing that that uh, keeps you up at night? I think with the team and the catering is hard to keep a crew. As far as the team with the catering, it's hard to keep a crew when the work isn't consistent. It's not like we have a space that you can come to every day during the week. You know, so we might have catering Tuesday, Wednesday, but we don't have anything Friday. So it's hard, and I, I get it. You know. I like, people need consistent work, and 
So I get that. So that's what we struggle with. I do have one person that's by my side forever. So I'm I'm just totally blessed with that. She's in India for three months. So I'm like stressing out right now. But um, I think that's our challenge with the catering, not having that consistency where everything, with the exception of our pop-up, we do a pop-up every Monday um, at Wing Wings at 422 Haight Street. So that's consistent. But, you know, with the catering, it can go up and down. For for the rest of you, is the is team, in fact, the number one challenge that, that you're facing? Or is there something else um, that, you know, that you need to focus on that you feel like is, is something that continues to be an issue? And is that something that, um, or is, is this issue that is your, your biggest challenge and evergreen problem? Or is it really driven by what's happening right now in the community? I have, a, I have a comment and a question. I'm supposed to know all the answers, but I don't always. Um, one of them is the way that the tipping laws are written. It's a big conundrum, but if, if I could find a way to share tips across the back of the house as well as the front of the house that wasn't illegal, um, I could not only make my staff you know, love each other a little bit more, I could um, perhaps provide more for my cooks. And the waiters are no good without the cooks, and the cooks are no good without the waiters, so I don't understand why we have to pit them against each other. Our laws are antiquated. I don't know who we talk to. Who is the restaurant politician? <laughs> who, who do we talk to to stand up and talk for us? Stand up and talk? So cassava, um, we were really lucky at the way we uh, grew organically. The first space we had was 450 square feet. It was just me, myself, and Chris, and two other friends. And ever since then, we've only hired people as dishwasher. And then from there, and then also, this is like the big part. <laughs> we've only hired people as a dishwasher, and we made sure that they didn't have restaurant experience more than a year. We prefer no experience. The reason being is that uh, when Chris had a stage in uh, Tokyo at a restaurant called Kikunoi, they're a two-star Michelin Kaiseki restaurant. Um, so in Japanese restaurant um, industry, and then, you know, like I think in France too, um, everybody start from the bottom and then you do all stations. There's, you know, right? And then you do, you start from dishes and then you prep and then you do light service and then this and that, this and that. And then um, I have always been a bartender and I was like, I would never hire a bartender like myself. That I'm just going to make drinks and you're going to bring my glasses. I'm not going to wash my glasses. You're going to put my towel there. I will never hire a person like that. I can only make drinks that don't do anything else. Um, so in, so the way we hire is that, um, so we hire from a dishwasher and the first three months we say probation, we only pay them hourly, right? And then in that time, uh, we have, um, three different operations. Uh, during the weekday, we do counter service cafe. And then during the weekend, uh, we do brunch, sit down service and dinner, uh, is a sit down service six nights a week. Um, so we start from, uh, dishwashing and then see, um, they can prep and then see if they could do a counter service and then see how they talk. And then it, in that three months, I figured, you know, whether this person is more interested in, you know, production or service. You know, some people have like, you know, conversation skill, like, you know, better English first, you know, um, or some people, oh, I don't want to talk, but I cut really fast. That's fine, you know. Um, and then so, you, so I figured that out. And then after three months, uh, we put everybody in tip pool. Um, our restaurant, we do about a million a year, but it's only 900 square feet. Kitchen is open. Everybody, including Chris, myself, we all run food. We plate and then we run food. So that's kind of how we go about, you know, that everybody get to share tips. Um, so what I do is that I pull all tips for the payroll two weeks and then divide it by hours. 
of everybody. And um, it's not, you know, they, so so what happens is that um, the people that only work weekday slow days and the people that work only cooking shift the brunch time, everybody gets the same tips. So now, um, so I pull every, all the tips and then divide it by hours. And it becomes about between when it's really slow, it's about $8 an hour. And then when it's good, about $10 an hour. So my staff across the board gets about $24 uh, an hour. So that's kind of how we go by it. Um, so there's no front and back. And also, I get staff that can work multiple stations. Like myself, um, yes, I serve tables. Um, I open wine bottles. I work the line sometimes. I can play. I can't really cook, but I can play things. Um, you know, so like, so you're trying all these people to do multiple station. And that has been the way in Japan and I think in Europe, like, you know, like um, a classic kitchen. But in the U.S., where my husband and I really thought always, we've always worked in, you know, the American restaurants. And then we always kind of felt that front and back has such a classism, you know, segregated almost, you know. And then we just never liked that. Why? Like, if you're making food or you're taking the order you're contributing to the cells exactly the same way. Why should a person cook get paid less than the person that just took the order? So this was our way of fixing the system and then how everybody gets paid the same. Um, and if that person is running the food, they're entitled to be in the tip pool. So that's how we go about it. No, so the back of the house, as soon as they played it, they run the food. So we almost have no separation. And then one, one of our sous chefs is plating a salad course, you know, for the first course of tasting menu. They drop it off and they said, oh, you know, can we get more glass of wine? Sure. He takes it and then he just let us know. So there's no separation. And then, you know, like as an operator, don't you rather have a person that can do three stations at one station when you're paying $14? I, I, I would love to spread this idea. And if San Francisco gets on that, it'll be great. You know, more equality for all, you know. <laughs> Well, I've never owned a large restaurant, <laughs> right? And also, and this is the reason why I didn't hire people that worked in restaurants before, because I knew that a bartender like myself would never work for a restaurant. Like, I was like, I'm sorry, if I can make $200 a night, I'm not going to work for you, right? So <laughs> I didn't hire those people, basically. But Mark, what do you yeah, think, do you think so that would work? So the comment on you said, it doesn't work in a bigger restaurant. Um, well, they have a different system in France. Yeah, but even in different states in New York City, servers make $4 an hour, and they make tips. Um, the thing here in San Francisco and many other states, we have to pay servers $14 an hour and tips on top of that. So it's, it's, a, it's a very difficult thing, um, and it does, it does create this uh, division that when I was at AQ, I really strived hard to not be divided, but it does create a division when servers are making $400 or $500 a night to work four or five hours a day, and the cooks are working 12 hours a day, making $140, $150. And they're, the thing they get, they get a staff beer at the end of the meal, at the, at the end of that. So there's not, there's not tons of incentive for them to stay. So I think what Suzanne said as far as like staff retention, you do have to do a lot of things. It's not always about the money. Money does pay a big, play a big role in it, but I think you do create a positive environment, a really good culture. Um, and that's something that I'm really battling right now because I'm working on a new project and I go back and forth on like how to I, how do I create an environment where everyone's compensated. So I'm mean, gonna have a few different ideas, but one one idea is what Yuko's saying is where the cooks run everything. But yeah, that works in a small restaurant. It doesn't necessarily work in a big restaurant where you have you know 80 seats. Um, cooks can't make you know eight ducks and then run eight ducks. Um, that'd be a little crazy. Um, 
so so I go back and forth on that. And then one one idea I had was, you know, everyone makes a salary in the kitchen. Um, I know you can't do that. Yeah. <laughs> but you can't do. Yeah. Uh, Why can't you do that? Illegal. That yeah. would explain it. <laughs> so there's like, there's like Suzette said, there's all these like antiquated laws that really make it challenging. Or you just kind of like, when I was a young cook, I got paid shift pay. Um, so I got paid. I know it's illegal. It was illegal back then. Um, <laughs> but I would make like 100 bucks a day. 120 bucks a day. When I worked in the city, I also had like four roommates and didn't have a car and da 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 da. Usual things that young cooks bitch about now. Um, but yeah, that's illegal too. Like you can't. And shift pay is like super not okay with me because it's like shift pay is you work you work 12 hours a day and you make 100 bucks. It's a set amount of money. Yeah, per shift. You can do that here, but what I found because I've been doing a lot of research on this, the consumers get really upset. Because a lot of people will walk by your restaurant and they see that your spaghetti now is $22. And they're like, oh, this place is fucking expensive. I'm not going in there. But realistically, like, that's all included with tip. Um, so it's, I know there's a few places in the city that have tried it. Like, True Norman has tried it, uh, Biographical. But I know they stopped doing it because they got a lot of negative feedback from consumers. Me? Okay. How do I feel about that? Um, I think it, it's, it creates this similar situation, though, where, like, cooks can't get the tip. Even though, because from Square, because they're not traditionally like I guess in the law, what it says is you have to be servicing yes, to get your tips. So that's why it works for them because the the cooks are running the food and they're they're talking with the guests. But if you're just back back there making a sandwich, you're not necessarily servicing the guests. You're just making a sandwich. So that's where that's where the laws are like really like. I may not say this is actually correct. I solicited some input from Giancarlo Paderlini, who's my partner, and he's very well known in the industry, been in hotels for years before we even had the restaurant. And we went back and forth about pooling the tips from the proprietary perspective, where we simply gathered the money for the waiters, for the cooks, for whomever, and doled it back out. We get taxed. We're taxed. On money that we don't keep, we don't see, that we hand right back over to our employees. It's not even cash. It's credit card tips as well. That means we have to pull the cash. That means I have to pull the cash from my bank account based on your credit card, and I'm not going to distribute it, pay tax on it, and then hand it over. So I'm just saying it's the laws. It's not, I don't think the consumer even knows these things, because if they did, they wouldn't like it any better than we do. We should find okay. out who the restaurant politician is and talk to them about this. You should base it. I know you mentioned about the reviews that you can get from the square and it's worked for me with my pop-ups and I had a food trailer out for a couple of years and we would get that instant feedback like instantly it would come through and say some people would even leave comments like oh the service was great the food was great so it's worked in a positive for me and I like it. Is that uh is square one of the only tools um that's common that would give you that kind of instant feedback that you use as well? The, oh, the Yelps, yeah. I guess to, to Suzette's um, earlier, is there a question? Okay. <laughs> they don't realize the impact of any of the laws that they put on us. Fortunately, I don't think we have a policy expert here tonight. So I wish we did, because a lot of the conversation very much has to do with that. Um, but I'm gonna switch gears a little bit. Um, so this is more of like an inspirational, inspiration question. Do we have a policy expert here? Okay. All right. Um, so
So um, this is more of like an inspirational question. Is there anybody um, in the San Francisco Bay Area restaurant community that's been really inspiring to you that you've seen do something creative or um, you know, has, that you've seen really survive and thrive in this economy that we've had and kind of the changing times from the past few years? And, and who is that? Renee, do you want to actually start? Yeah. <laughs> we were talking about that a little earlier today, but um, this is, is ice cream. It's not a restaurant. It's ice cream and it's Miyako's and it's been on Fillmore Street since I was a little girl, like well over 20 years. And he does the same thing that he's done forever and he's still here. And I just think that's huge for him to still have this ice cream, hot dogs and sandwiches and a load of candy. Um, but it's, it, he's still here and he's doing the same thing and the community embraces him. And I think the community plays a big part in the survival of restaurants, you know, ice cream shops, whatever, you know, and he's always been a big part of the community. And, and so I, it, it's just great that he's still here. Of course, the chef's up here, right? Of course. And my husband, um, you can tell I, she's front of house. Right? I always say this. My husband, right? My husband never called in sick any school or any job he's ever had. So I always say that. So he's just like the most amazing person, an amazing husband. Um, but as an operator, um, I want to say maybe Ryan Cole from a high neighbor group. Uh, the reason being is that all of their restaurants, um, every single restaurant that I visited, all their servers are like, happy. Um, and then they take a lot of, you know, um, initiative um, training their people. But, you know, it's San Francisco is so common to go to a restaurant and then a server comes and is like, hi, can I get you something? You know what I mean? Like they roll their eyes and it just doesn't happen there. And everybody seems so enthusiastic to genuinely want to help um, to create a restaurant culture like that for for locations, you know, with I don't know how many staff they have, but like 200 guests front and back, you know, um, I really admire that. And then to build a culture like that, I think it's, he's such a pioneer. So I really look up to him. And then I try to visit their restaurant as often as I can because it's such an inspiration. Um, so the high neighbor uh, group, they have Trestle um, and also the Trestle and the Corridor and Stone Throw and Naked Angel. What is it? Fat Angel. Yeah, Fat Angel. Yeah. Yep. I'm really happy that she brought up that group because that was my group that I really enjoyed with. I actually partnered with them to do some charity work. Um, but my, my other person that I really respect for completely different reasons is um, Dominique Kren from Atelier Kren. Uh, and you might say, why? It's fine dining. Well, to be ethical in our industry is difficult uh, for various reasons. And so you can look at people who shall remain nameless who have empires. Um, but I don't know that I would look up to them with the way they treat their people or the way they manage their funds or the way they've pushed out various things or overtaken other things. So when I think about inspiration, I think about community, and, and McFernay brought up the word first. Um, and I don't know if you know how much power you have as a consumer. You guys hold a key. And San Francisco has always been a community, and that's what I am most afraid that we are losing. I am most afraid of how that trickle-down is going to affect all of us. I'm afraid of the way we define our boundaries. Boundaries used to be by expensive and inexpensive, or age and longevity and new. It used to be um, by fine dining or casual. And as much as I'm happy to tear down the boundaries, I'm also looking forward to what they're going to be replaced with, because people are always trying to define something. 
what type of food it is, whether we have a food critic who's very on top of their game or a food critic who doesn't really service us the way they should. Um, there's a lot of boundaries that if we want to break them, okay, fine. But what are we going to replace them with? And I think community crosses all boundaries. Community of sustainability, community of our farmers or ranchers and providers, community of the end users like me. I'm just an end user. I'm a provider of a service to a consumer. And it isn't necessarily, if you really want to look at it, it isn't just what I think. It's what I hope to provide. And that's the difference. Um, so when I look at someone like Dominique Crenn, here's what I see. She's not from here. She came here and joined here. She brought an idea and whether you like her food or not is irrelevant. The point is she stood behind it. You could go there and eat tomorrow and maybe not even like your menu, but I guarantee when you leave, you'll respect her. She stood for something. She stood for what she believed in. She put her money into it. She's changed. She's remodeled. She's opened the test of time. She's gone and opened a second rotation. Um, she hires people. She trains people. She tries to be good to them as far as I know and what I believe. Um, and I find that to be unique in fine dining, especially. We come from a very bad side of the industry. We come from very militaristic kitchens. We take out people. We shove things down their throats and up their derrieres and make them, you know, feel bad because that's part of learning, right? That's part of growing. But what I have found is that trains the love of food out of people. And it's very, very sad. If you don't like me or the way I run my kitchen, I have no problem with that. My only question to you is, how would you like to do it? Because if you want to tear me out, tell me what's better. No problem. Open doors, open policy. Just come tell me. But let's try it. Let's see if it works. And if I've done it before, I'm going to tell you. I expect you to listen. And then you're going to tell me how you're going to do it differently. And we have a repartee. We have, we have some sort of resource for a future. And so I'm asking social media. I'm asking sustainability. I'm asking waste control. I'm asking every topic that's a hot political food topic to own up and have a solution, to try to find a solution. So not just point a finger or lay a blame. So I'm not going to be part of the blame game because to me it doesn't get you anywhere. Um, and it, you, can, you can identify the source. That's fine. But then once you're there, you got to move on. you got to move on. Otherwise, you're not getting anywhere. That's good. Um, I'm going to say Chad Robertson from Chartine Bakery. Because um, I remember when I lived in the city back in the day when Mission wasn't so nice and Chartine Bakery was there. And uh, it's always been delicious. And to see like what they've been doing over the years and progression they've made. Um, and the fact that it's just bread and delicious pastries. And these days when you see, I, talk, I speak with a lot of young cooks and they're always about like, you know, becoming famous really quick or learning the new trend. And to see someone that's just mastered the craft of baking the way Chad has done and Elizabeth too, um, has been, it's an amazing thing that it's just flour, water and salt. And, you know, it's something that right now I think identifies San Francisco as like people come here to eat their bread. Um, and, you know, like... They've, they've took their time. I think a lot of people like expand and want to do too much and do too much social media and get all crazy. And they've, they've for a long time, they just had the Tartine Bakery and then they opened Bar Tartine and that went through like, you know, four different reiterations. And now they have Tartine Manufactory and it's an amazing place, but it's taken them, you know, like 20 years to get to that point or maybe more. Um, and I think that to me is like something that I, I look to like emulate a little bit. Maybe not 20 more years. This is Rebecca Goberstein, and you're listening to Menu Stories, a series where we get to know the stories about the people and restaurants behind the food we love. This is our podcast, and we'll be right back to this live recording of our Chef's Panel event hosted by Yelp in the summer of 2017, where the panel discussed what it's like surviving and thriving as Bay Area restaurateurs. Sharing all that. Um, uh, speaking of the culture and kitchens, um, I know Chef Mark, you've had some experience with that as um, somebody who spent some time cooking in New York kitchens, which are notorious as well, especially in fine dining. 
Um, how has that experience shaped what you bring to um, the kitchen? Um, well, I think, I think Suzette kind of touched on this a little bit, that I think if you cooked back in the 90s, 80s, um, I didn't cook in the 80s, 70s, 60s. What? You're not 60s. You're like 70s. 80s, 80s. Um, Especially in the, in the fine dining atmosphere, it was, it was very intense. It was very cutthroat. Um, it was not an enjoyable experience. Um, and I think that's when I opened AQ, I decided to not create a culture like that. Um, I'm not, I mean, I, I think all chefs sometimes lose temper, um, but I, I really try to find a better way of talking to the cooks and not screaming and throwing things and cursing. Um, I think, you know, some, some guests that come, because we had, we had an open kitchen at AQ, and some guests, I guess, like to see, they want to see some drama, because um, they watch, like, Gordon Ramsay or something. Um, and we, we never did it, because, like, it's not, to me, it's not the way of the future. And it's not, it doesn't produce people that want to cook, like Suzette said. Like, it doesn't create people that want to stay with you. It doesn't create people that want to, like, keep growing as a cook, as a culinarian. Um, granted, like, when I did it, like, I, I actually enjoyed it. I guess I'm a little bit of a sadist. Um, and New York, I definitely didn't like New York for that reason. Um, I came from San Francisco and I moved to New York to go cook. And I was always like a California kid to them and avocado jokes and sprouts jokes and all those nonsense jokes. <laughs> um, so I didn't, I didn't enjoy my experience in New York. Um, it, was a good, it was a good learning experience. Um, but it was, it was a little too, too bro-y and um, too much of like a pirate ship, which I think, uh, I think a lot of restaurants aren't doing anymore these days. There's still restaurant groups out there that operate that way, unfortunately, that still berate their cooks and are very abusive. Um, but I think, especially in San Francisco, there's a lot more chefs out there nowadays that take care of their, their personnel. A broy pirate ship sounds like a good uh, beta breakers idea. <laughs> Just coming up. <laughs> I'm sure it's taken. Um, anybody else have any um, uh, thoughts on, on the kitchen culture? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, go ahead, Brene. I think, you know, my experience is a little different than the restaurant industry because I work um, out of La Cocina. And I work in a kitchen with eight other businesses at one time. And it can get intense, but I have developed such great relationships there. You know, I've learned so much from other businesses and just seeing different things, you know, not even so much we had a conversation. I just saw how they may have wrapped something or so I've picked up a lot from working around these wonderful ladies and developed so many great relationships. So it's a little different than being in the restaurant um, environment, being in the shared commercial, shared commercial kitchen space and taking that journey with other women that's doing the same thing. So my experience is a little different. <laughs> and don't make very good bro pirates. And then but like good. the Christ. people I work with, you know, <laughs> and, and the people who've come in to work with me, like I don't have the heart to, to be mean, you know, and I, um, I don't ask them to do anything that I wouldn't do. The truth is you get more out of people if you don't do that. Nobody wants to hear that because culture of a kitchen is three things, three most effective tools in any kitchen, fear, intimidation, and ridicule. So you take those three off the table, what you got? Oh my God, what are you gonna do now? Sheer mayhem. So my point is, as unorthodox as it is, is I have to make them believe they want to do it because they want to do it. And whether I'm in the building or I'm outside the building, they still want to do it. Because a sign of a good manager in my book is no one can tell if you're there or not. So I want them to believe they're doing the best they can do. It doesn't mean I'm not gonna listen to three other variations of how to do something, but at the end of the day, I'm the orchestrator, I hold the reins and I have to make a decision. It doesn't mean I didn't hear him. They, they get to feel heard, heard, which is huge. 
I mean, I went through years where I had so much to contribute and no one wanted to hear from me. They didn't want to see my recipes, my thought, my garnish, nothing. Just go over there, shut up and do what you're told. You know, and there's an element of the militaristic kitchen. I think that Mark said he liked it. I, I understand. I agree, too. You need an element of that. You need an element not to do it the rest of your life and not to get the love trained out of you. But you need to understand the parameters of the industry of which you've enlisted in. It should be both extremes. Maybe something that's a little too soft, something that's a little too hard, so you can stay in the mainstream and believe you're there for a reason. Because you can't stay if you don't keep your passion. You can't stay if you don't have those reasons. We love feedback, good or bad, because that's what we, we live for. We live for it. So to be have that piece taken away, especially if the customer's unhappy, I, I feel smacked or slapped or cheated. I, I want them to tell me if they don't like something. Because I learn from that. If you're really open and you're vulnerable and you're still listening, you learn a lot from your customers. I don't want that shortchanged. I want that. I learn a lot from my cooks. The guy who has the least amount of experience sometimes is the most creative person in the bunch because he doesn't know the parameters. And it goes to say with her hiring someone who has no previous experience because A, you get to train them the way you want to, but B, they don't know what they can't do. They only know what they're going to try to do. And that's the, the attitude that you want. And when we talked about community, my fear is that our society across America is changing dramatically right now and that we are disenfranchised from what our parents were, our grandparents, and we're trying to hold on to little bits and pieces of it, but we're losing a lot of it. We're not in tune with the land anymore as a culture, as a country. We were an agricultural country, America was. There was more people in the land than there was in the cities. Now there's more people in the cities, and it's going to get bigger and more than there are in the countries. I mean, how are we going to feed them all? And a whole other topic. But that whole mentality of entitlement, I mean, I don't want to say my daughters don't repeat this everywhere. Um, my, my, own, my own children, you know, have a sense of entitlement. I didn't teach them that. I don't know where they got it. But I think it starts when you, you start looking at TV, commercials, what you have to have, who you got to be, what you got to look like, got to have your toes painted, your nails painted, got to have a Starbucks. You got to walk through the mall with Victoria's Secret bag on your hand, whether it's empty or not, because you're just dog shit if you're not, you know, and you don't want to be, you don't want to be dog poobies. You want to be somebody good, but everything's measured by something other than what it used to be measured. Where's the trout? Where's the truth? Where's, where's the bottom line? Where's, I mean, we're having kids and raising kids based on what? Do they want to be an astronaut and go off in space, or do they want to be a multimillionaire, you know, basketball player? Do they want to be in music? I mean, the, the, even the values that we give them, even the, the stereotypes or the things that we're trying to show them, the role models thing, the role models have all changed. We're losing our core values, and it comes right into the restaurant. It comes right into the restaurant when someone walks in and says, show me what you're going to do for me. And I'm a restaurant that says the customer's always right. I get a little miffed when they come in with that attitude. It doesn't sit well. It doesn't start right. That isn't the way it's supposed to be. I am there believing that you are right. Let me show you what I can do. If you like it, hallelujah. If you don't, then please let me know. Please. That's all I'm asking. Pat? Oh, I completely agree. Um, I know that's what I'm saying. Uh, I, I think that I agree with them that um, in, you know, as an operator, I think you do need to have... Um, your authority um, established. Yes, you do hear from them. You listen to them. Um, you guide them. You know, you treat them well. But at the end of the day, especially for our restaurant, people are coming to eat Chris's food. You know, yes, to make it better, yes, it's great. You know, but then if anybody's going to come and try to run, make it, it's not his food, and that's not really our direction. Um, we don't really have anybody that do that because nobody ever really cooked outside of a cassava. Um, sometimes it's a frustration for him that um, he doesn't feel like, oh, I have enough you know, people to bounce the ideas back and forth for. 
but you guys are here, so that's good. <laughs> um, but but um, establishing authority and then being abusive is, you know, it's different. And then, you know, like when Chris was in Japan uh, for two months, that was 2010, but then, right, maybe saw somebody getting hit with the back of the knife. And then, <laughs> yeah, and all this is happening. He has no idea what's going on. He, like, understood no Japanese, right? And everybody's just, like, screaming in Japanese. But, I mean, like, you know, Chef Lieberman said, that's that's going, that's, we know that that's not the way anymore. And then that you don't get out, you know, enough. But yeah, I'm just adding two cents. I have one more question for all of you, and then I have a few individual questions. Um, so we do hear a lot about the restaurant closures, um, the community issues, um, the changing um, society and culture, um, and also the rent spike. But what are some of the positive things that you think have come about with this hyper-competitive San Francisco market? Is there is there anything that you think is actually good about what's been going on? I think the diversity of food. It's it's a lot here. Like you can pretty much eat from all over the world, you know, just right here in San Francisco. So I think that's amazing. Um, I think being hyper competitive means that only restaurants that should stay stay, but not necessarily. Um, but it's it's weird. Um, I don't know. Um, like when a restaurant has to close, and then I think it raises the issue why that had to happen. And then from as an industry, like it could grow from it. Um, like she said, like the diversity is great. Uh, but I do have a concern about the price point keep going up. I don't think it's the way it should be. You know, like the like like I said, like a one bedroom apartment shouldn't be five thousand dollars. You know, like a seven course tasting like menu shouldn't start at four hundred fifty dollars. You know, that shouldn't be the norm. Like I think the norm is little changing a little bit. Um, so that's a concern, but Diversity is always great. I think the challenges are, are vast and that I like what they bring. Um, the fact that our clientele can go to a farmer's market and get what I can get. They could get the tools I can get. They can see the kitchens. They can get the on YouTube. They can find a video how to make anything. And um, it pushes the envelope. It makes it harder and better for all of us in the industry to try to come up with something that's still going to surprise them, wow them, train them, show them something different. Um, I like the sense of community, obviously very important to me. Um, and I think that all of these changes challenge us, uh, even with social media, to, to be more, do more, have more, uh, learn how to uh, portray yourself, perhaps on different platforms in different ways that you never maybe even would have thought of, but it might reach a different clientele who would love you. Um, so I'm an incurable optimist, believe it or not, and I think that um, there's, it's, got, it's got to be something good. There's a silver lining. I just think San Francisco is unique. I don't want us to lose that, but I'm hoping to preserve of all the boundaries that get crossed, that's the one I'm really not willing to sacrifice. I think we have to stay who we are. And it's the diversity, most decidedly. Um, I think for me, there's a few factors that I think about the, the current scene. Um, I do like the accessibility, like Suzette said, that we live, in a, we live in a city that there's so many people that know about food, know about like different ramen, different soba, buckwheat flours, and different shoyus, like all these things that like you go to like Many places in America, they have no idea what you're talking about. And I think that's why a lot of us are here in the Bay Area, because we're able to feed people that really appreciate what we're doing. Um, it's why we're not cooking like in Minnesota. In, I don't want to say it. Uh, okay. I know, but Minnesota is actually coming up. So. Um, so I think that's one thing that I see you know, getting better and better, that the accessibility is there. Um, I think the current, um, not the trend, but I guess the, uh, uh, I guess the, mm, no. I don't know. I lost track. <laughs> um, 
I guess I guess from what I'm what I'm saying is that I think the innovation that I see from a lot of chefs these days is very inspiring. Um, I remember cooking here in the 90s, and it was a lot of the same. Everyone's doing the kind of the same thing. Like everyone's doing a regular salad, and you go somewhere and they do a regular salad. You go to some fine dining restaurant, regular salad, and you go to a casual place, regular salad. And so everyone's just doing the same ham salad. And now everyone everyone goes to the same market. They see arugula, but there are so many other people that are doing different things with it now. And I think that's something that is in the last 10, 15 years slowly has like trickled in and you start seeing really good caliber chefs, you know, finally like getting outside of the Alice Waters box of being just really simple food, um, but still using really good quality ingredients. I think the one thing that kind of is a back and forth on me is social media. Um, I'm, I'm to blame. I, I look at social media all the time, but it's, it's something that like I think a lot of guests especially with IQ, they would look at these pictures online and they already have like a premeditated like conception of what's going to be, what the meal is going to be. They already seen reviews. Um, and it's really, it's really hard to like live up to those like promises. Especially like sometimes like everything doesn't always go perfect and everyone like sees a picture of the chicken from like two weeks ago and they're like, this chicken is not the same. And there was a time when like no one knew that chicken looked different the day before. Like it's so you ate the chicken and it was delicious. It didn't have like this notion that it was supposed to be this way. And so, like, with social media, like, taking over a lot of people's lives these days, it's, it's, it's challenging to, like, always be, you know, on top of that. But it's also, I guess, an important part of, like, what we do. Um, so now I have a couple individual questions for you, and then we should probably wrap up and see if there's any audience questions. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, hold, hold that, and then we'll, we'll get to the audience questions. Um, so, so, Yuka, um, and your husband, Chef Leo, recently raised over $50,000 through GoFundMe, as you mentioned. Um, so after five years of success, what happened? And, and when did you realize that that was something that you needed to do? So like I mentioned earlier, um, the very first space we got was like 400 square feet. And this was um, one guy was selling um, baked goods from another bakery. And then it just kind of selling and, it, you know, doing whatever. Um, so we took that over um, and then remodeled. And then the first remodel, you know, we spent like, I don't know, 40000 That was the money that we saved working and also $10,000 uh, $10,000 from my grandma for our wedding. We got married right before, you know, we were like, no, we can't open a place together as a boyfriend and girlfriend, so we're going to get married. So that's, what we did. so that's what we did. I robbed them from a proposal, but anyway. <laughs> and I'm a horrible wife. Um, so the, anyway, so, so that, and then, so the place that we went in was a single story that had two tenants. Um, and then it was uh, this crazy um, sublease drama. But anyway, we went in, uh, uh, beginning of 2012, and I knew that if we didn't do well, we can get out from that space. At the end of 2012, if we did well, then we can take over the next door space and then, you know, um, expand it double. Uh, so we were able to expand. Um, and, uh, so we, then we spent more money. Uh, we had a small investment, number 60,000, and we did a Kickstarter in 2014, you know, like a hint, uh, from AQ actually. Uh, and they raised 30,000 then. Uh, but you know, so like I said, like the original space was a small, small bakery that doesn't bake. And the other side was a real estate office. It was never meant to be, a, you know, a million dollar a year restaurant, you know, that does, I don't know, I don't know how many we do, 2,000, uh, 2000 covers a month, more, I don't know. Um, so, so we always, always, always had to add things. Um, so now we don't really have to do anything. But after five years or so, 
what we've done, so we've, we've expanded, right, uh, the double the size. Uh, we added outside heaters. We bought new furnitures, uh, this, and, this and that. Um, and then the biggest thing that happened was 2016 uh, when we added a hood <laughs> for four years or three and a half years, we were operating with no hood. Um, cassava is actually a no fire kitchen. Uh, everything, all cooking equipment in our restaurant is completely electric. It, luckily, the technology picked up, um, you know, recently that the ventless hood is really ahead. And then, um, you know, you can install one for like 30000 or something like that. But anyway, so all that thing is going to add it and add it and add it. And so we're always borrowing money to expand and always borrowing money to just keep up with the volume and the growth. Um, so, so like I said, March 5th was our 50 year anniversary. And then the following Monday, and I was like, oh, okay. Uh, like one of one of our vendors called in and was like, oh, your credit card didn't go through. I was like, oh, okay. And by then I had borrowed from everywhere possible. And then I borrowed, I took out money from all our personal credit cards. And I was like, I was talking to Chris, like, oh, baby, I don't think I can like make this one through. You know, I have no way to borrow money from anywhere. Um, I was like, you know, this is it. Like, I think we need to sell. But then, you know, like by then our debt was maybe like $300,000. Now it's maybe like 225 or something. But, you know, even we sold it because of the unique way the, the kitchen is set up. I didn't think we were going to be able to sell it to recoup it. You know, and I was like, oh, my God, what am I going to do? But then I kept thinking like, oh, you need to turn crisis into opportunity. And then I was talking to my friend uh, who was a really good regular turn, good advisor and friend. And he's like, oh, you know, you should you should look for investment and do a Kickstarter. Uh, but then in Kickstarter, I knew because I ran it before that you don't get money till, you know, like you run the whole course. Uh, one of our staff got sick a uh, little before that. And I ran a GoFundMe campaign for him. And that's when I learned that GoFundMe deposits daily. So I was like, oh, okay. Um, so I was like, you know what? I'm going to try. And then um, I decided to run GoFundMe campaign. Um, I was completely out of money this one Monday, Tuesday, we were just crying and then just thinking and thinking, thinking. And then a Wednesday night at 5 p.m., I decided to put a GoFundMe campaign and, you know, before, right before our dinner service. And by end of the dinner service, we had $8,000. And then I got $6,000 the next day and we were able to pay the credit card. And that's how we were saved. Yeah. Um, no, so how, and not also, I've always, always wanted to have kind of a, like a membership program. We're very, very, very um, connected to the community, but I wanted to kind of set up a clientele list per se. So what I decided to do was uh, running a GoFundMe. Um, the first year was um, you put $250 to the project or, you know, like you contribute $250 and you get 15% lifetime discount. And then I said, uh, okay, well, that's $250. And then if you put $100, then you get 5% lifetime discount. So then I was like, okay, you know what? This will like bring more people to keep coming back. And then our business partner about Ritual Roasters, um, we use Ritual Roasters Coffee. Um, Eileen, the owner, she called. She's like, you guys, oh my God, you can't give 15% off to everybody. I was like, okay, hold on. So she was, <laughs> so she said, why don't you give um, gift certificates and break into parts so that they don't, spend at once and then it, it, it doesn't take out from your cash like at once. I was like, okay, that's a good idea. So so the $250 and $100, I thought of that. And Eileen, with what Eileen said, I said, okay, well, $205, you get $240 in gift certificates and you put $105 and then you get um, $120 in gift certificates. Um, surprisingly, 
we're gonna move on to a couple. Oh, sorry. So, so most people yeah. did two hundred fifty dollars, but anyway. No, no, you can you can wrap up. I just want to make sure. We oh, get okay, okay, okay. So, so that was that was that, I guess. <laughs> I didn't mean to right. cut you off in the middle of the sentence. <laughs> you, go ahead and, and finish. No, I think I think so. They, so that was the story, and then at fifty thousand dollars, but that's all gone. It's already back in business. It's tough, you know, to keep cash. That's definitely tough. Um, so I'm just going to ask one more question, so we do have some time um, for the audience to also ask. Um, so. This is going to go to um, the venerable chef, Suzette Gresham. So you have had um, Aquarello for, like you said, 28 years in July, you'll be celebrating. Um, you've earned two Michelin stars. So you've seen a lot of um, change in the last 28 years in San Francisco. Um, it's been a constantly changing city. There have been booms and crashes, more booms. Uh, what do you think has helped Aquarello stay as successful as it has been? And how has that contrasted, if it has, with 1760, your other, your other restaurant? That's a really big question for the series, Emily. <clears throat> anyway, okay, cool. Um, I think when you have a long-standing restaurant, it's a cursing, is a curse and a blessing. Um, people don't think of it that way, but you don't open business and go, gee, I hope I fail in 10 years. Um, so it's odd that we should be around so long um, in some respects, and yet not surprising in others. I mean, you have to ask yourself, what, what did you do it for? Why did you do it? Um, you have to really have goals and ambition. And our goals, uh, John Crowley and I are very diverse people, Italian, male, six foot two. I'm American, female, and five foot two. Um, we came from extremely different backgrounds. But the one thing we had in common was we really believed that we wanted to give the guests something. We really wanted them to have an experience. We wanted to really provide from the service, from the wine, from the food, from the ambiance, from the decor, no matter what, that they would feel welcome. Hospitality was the, uh, the altar that we subscribed to in our religious beliefs that uh, the guest was always right, we really wanted to provide that. So when you fast forward through 28 years, you find that in different things. You find it in people who are looking for the food, they're looking for the wine, looking for the knowledge, they're looking for the rubbing elbows with anybody they think is knowledgeable in any one of those areas. But you also look at adversity. I had when Las Vegas opened up, I lost seven cooks in one week. There was me and one guy left. And there's this tenacity that comes from the belief that you're going to do it no matter what. Um, you know, we had survived the earthquake. We were open 90 days and the earthquake hit in 1989. And I had to give away veal, lamb loins, you know, filet mignon. I had to just give it away because I had no electricity. Um, we trusted in people. We trusted in some of the staff that we have who are still with us and been on that journey, who have come and gone and come back to us in that journey. We trusted our customers who were loyal and supportive. When we had down days, Giancarlo would actually cold call concierges here in San Francisco, so well known from his hotel background. And he'd say, got a lot of openings. If you want to send us somebody, we can take care of whoever you've got. Got someone problematic? We're your restaurant. And so we made ourselves the one when no one else would take that guy who was, you know, gluten-free, vegetarian, uh, whatever he was, you know, however demanding, we made a point of making him happy. So when that goes back to a concierge or back to a hotel or back to anybody else, word gets out. You've got somebody who wants to have a good time, these guys are going to do it. And, you know, you know, you can be the great and burn bright maybe for two years and be gone. Our goal was to be good all the time. Consistency, quality, delivered no matter what. So was I always trendy? No, I've never been trendy. Would I, would I be considered cutting edge? I don't probably think I'd ever be cutting edge. But I can guarantee that you're going to have a really good time Bacarello. Something's going to click for you. Either it's our staff, it's, it's some part of your experience that's going to click. 
um, we're going to make sure of it. And I think that's why I'm more vehement about being involved with that ability to fix anything, because that's something that we've made our reputation on. Once I had a gentleman who had ordered rabbit. I knew I had none of the rabbit left I wanted to serve. I had one that I felt was not as good. Dire, dire decision, right? Which way you're going to go? Sent it out, and he sent it back. He wasn't happy. So I went out to the table with a I said, I'm so sorry. I just want to applaud your palate because you are very astute. That rabbit was inferior, and I told him, I'd like you to try this dish. And I left. And he called me back when the waiter sent the waiter back. He said, I want to speak to the chef. I'm like, now what am I going to do? Got no rabbit and I got this left. So I go back out, go back out, and he said, I don't think I've ever had anybody take as much responsibility for my experience. I don't care what you served me. I'm so impressed with the fact that you were concerned about my well-being that you came out and spoke to me that I'll be back. And he's been coming back, I think, once a year. He doesn't even live in the area. Comes back once a year with wives and girlfriends as they come and go, um, you know, various things. But uh, it's just one of those things where you just don't give up. And, and I'm sure you get close to the line. You feel like you're really close to the line. You make different decisions when you're close to that line And if you're not. Not your money, not your life's blood, not your family. You make different decisions. And we've always treated it like this is end-all, be-all. This has to be us. It's got to be this. Um, and so when you're convicted like that, you know, there's a lot can get in your way. Things can go wrong, mind you. They've gone wrong for us plenty of time. But somehow, with I, I have to give a lot of credit to my partner. He's really been able to forecast. And forecasting is huge in this industry because you don't know exactly what's coming your way. But he'll... At 5.30, I'm like, Giancarlo, what are you doing? He's painting the baseboards. I'm like, what are you, they're, they're wet. He's like, they're a mess. You cannot have our guests looking at, I mean, we're crazy. We are flat out crazy. But you have to live on that edge of craziness because you're assuming that it makes a difference. And if, you, if it makes a difference, you've got to do it. And so that's the conviction, you know, that runs through. And that's looking for mortar and brick because you believe, in, and they went and did a GoFundMe page. They believed they could still make it, that they hadn't, you know, Mark's looking for his next project because he believes he's got something worthy sell, provide, or do. If any of us didn't have that, we wouldn't. And it's part of what makes us stubborn and crazy, but it's also the thing. Thank you to our panel. Um, so we have some time, right, for audience questions? Okay, great. So, yeah. <laughs> Who wants to take the, the menu question? I, I just, I agree with that because I don't like to go to restaurants and it's a book, you know, and I'm like, how can they keep so fresh you know it, it's a book you I hate it <laughs> you know I hate it and I think when I started cooking and I was cook I cook a lot of um dishes that I grew up eating and I would see different things and I would be like oh I, you know and, and I do I put a little spin on some things and I try new things but I always felt like oh I have to be like this and I have to be like that and then it got to the point where it was like no I don't like let me do what I do and do it well you know and it's worked for me so I, I totally agree with that. I don't like to go into, I was having lunch yesterday and it was menu boards up and I told my friend, I was like, it was like five different boards with 20 things on the board. And I'm like, it's a lot of food. Like this is a huge menu. You know, like how can, if you ask them to prepare all that stuff, like right now, they couldn't do it. You know, they couldn't do it. So I, um, when I came out of culinary school, I started in Oakland at Brown Sugar Kitchen and she had, like her menu was just perfect. I mean, it, was, it wasn't too much. We executed everything well, and I loved it. So I, I totally agree. Dinner, uh, so we have four course um, tasting menu every night, and then, but that's still part of the a la carte menu. 
currently, there are four appetizer. We have five entree, five, three desserts. That's it. And then we just yeah rotate. Uh, we do have three different services though. So the counter service cafe and the brunch have a different menu, but each menu is very very small. You would ask me that, right? I'm one of the crazies that still has a lot of stuff, but I've downsized and changed and simplified. But we believe in providing this experience for the guests that they still get to choose. So I have an a la carte side by side with a tasty menu. I have a really tiny, old, antiquated kitchen. It's really a challenge. But we have shifted and kept uh, some of our signature dishes and buried them in different places so that it's eliminated a lot of the crossover. Um, and we do change on a regular basis all the time. But uh, my menu, by and large, is not that large to begin with. Four, five, four, six, four, pretty much down the a la carte. And then you have the 11-course seasonal tasting menu. So it's a challenge for the kitchen. But mom and pop anymore. So. But you already had the answer. It's simplify. You're, you're right. Yeah, we agree. Uh, I have nothing to say. <laughs> I know there's a question That's over all been here. Said. <laughs> yeah, there's hey, my guy. More than I have. Actually, it's a short but two-part question. One question was in regards to the tips and making that into kind of like a, a profit-sharing program. Um, my family actually in LA, we started, or they started a restaurant, and what they did is they focused on making sure everybody in the restaurant got paid. And they took the tips and they put it into a pool, but instead of paying it out as tips, they actually paid it as a bonus based on two or three different unique situations. One was the sales of the overall restaurant. Everybody in the restaurant was a comp was had a goal of making sure that the restaurant was profitable. If the, profit, if the restaurant wasn't possible, nobody got paid. But if the sales were there and the customer service both aligned, everybody got a bonus. And that bonus was paid once a month, keeping the retention and making sure those employees didn't leave before they got that bonus. And it was paid into the month, so halfway in, if they left, they left. They, a bonus is, from what I understand, he, he's an attorney. <laughs> So I don't, I don't, I don't, I've never heard anything like this. Yeah. I think, uh, I think they called it profit I think, sharing. I don't know. Bonus. I've never heard anything like that before. I think um, you might run into issues with legality on it. Um, but I also think you might run into issues with people not making their money until the end of the month. A lot of, a lot, especially a lot of servers in front of the house, unfortunately. Um, they're used to making their, their money either that night or that week. Right. Um, and so... It's gonna be. It's gonna be. It would be a very drastic change to say to tell them you're gonna get paid out at the end of the month as opposed to getting paid out weekly. Their sales actually went up 30% from last year. Yeah. From this model, but then again, it works. It's a different, unique yeah. model. Um, the second thing is, all of you guys are very, very successful. How were you able to scale? Go from one customer to 10,000 and whatnot. What got you to that level? Like, how'd you get there? How were you able to retain that client and bring them back, as well as cause awareness and grow with marketing? Um, I think for the restaurant to be as good as last year, like what Chef Suzanne was saying, um, you have to be better than last year. Then you're same as good to the consumers. So every year, I think you have to be better. Um, Yelp helps, um, unlike, unlike Chef Suzanne. Actually, I reply to every single com uh, review um, and then I address like, you know, what happened or like if I don't think what the other person is saying is valid, then I say that, you know, or, but what really I think helps is that you reply to good 
reviews and you thank them and you ask them to come back. If I get a review for counter service and I tell them, oh, thank you so much. I, I love that you like the counter service. Can you, you know, like, please come back for dinner. So I'll tell them about different service, um, Instagram, Facebook. Um, I do medium posts. Uh, what you post on Facebook and what you post on Instagram is different. Um, the clientele, uh, you know, like the audience on Instagram tends to be more brunch clientele, whereas uh, Facebook audience is older. So you have a different segment of social media in uh, Target. And also, um, I, um, I founded a Merchants Association for the street. Um, yes, I want to give back to the community, but just simply outer Richmond is not that known. So I thought if the area becomes more popular, then I'll get busier. So that's my marketing, actually. I'm using that platform. That's a different platform. Um, so that's how we approach it. But, but first thing first, your service has to be better than the day before, the last year. Your food has to be better every year. Even the food is priced same, it has to taste better. Otherwise, when somebody has it twice, it's like, oh, it wasn't as good as last time. You know, because the shock, like, oh, wow, is gone already, right? So um, you have to be better every time. That's what we try. You know, we don't always necessarily execute, but. Probably, okay. Maybe one more question, sure. and then we should probably wrap up. Sure. Um, yeah, I just had a question about the Michelin stars. As far as uh, getting them, does it increase your business? Does it help your business? Does it affect your bottom line? Do you feel that you have to keep up with such, you know, new ingredients, new techniques? Does that, does it, does it, overall, does, does it affect, how does it affect your business? It's a really tough thing to answer in one short story, but, but basically, yes. Um, because of what it does for those who read Michelin or for following Michelin, like they follow Zagat or they follow any other guide. Those uh, Milo, you don't hear much about as much or any critic they follow. Um, and so it brings you someone who's looking for something. For a lot of people, they don't even know what Michelin stars are about. And they just know you're a fancy restaurant, costs a lot of money, and that's good. Okay, we're going for a special occasion. I'm proposed to my girlfriend. It's got to be good. Okay, so um, yeah, but the Michelin does have a lot of pressure because the last thing you want to do is lose one, right? One thing to get one, but you don't want to lose it. Giancarlo said to me today when I asked him about these questions, and he said, well, Suzette, the thing about Michelin is we never did it for that reason. And for us, we never did. That was never the end goal because when we opened the restaurant 28 years ago, Michelin wasn't here. Michelin came in 2007. So it's nice to be recognized, but we didn't do it for that reason. It was really nice to get the second star. We didn't expect it. We weren't looking for that. We've always been after the guest satisfaction. That, to me, is the biggest measurement and the return and the loyalty of those people. That's the biggest measure. Could probably wrap up. Uh, did you have something to say? No. Or are you just taking the mic? <laughs> All right. Well, why don't we give a round of applause to our awesome panel. Uh, we'll probably hang out for a couple minutes um, if there are any more questions. Talk. Anybody wants to stay. So thank you all for coming. This was awesome. Thank you to Yelp for hosting us. This was great. You just heard the 49th episode of Menu Stories, an ongoing series of multimedia stories about the people and restaurants behind the food we love. If you enjoyed this story, please spread the word to your friends about the work we do. Subscribe to the Menu Stories series on menustories.com so you can get the next episode delivered to your inbox. There you'll also find the complete chef's panel episode recorded live at Yelp HQ with pictures and a behind the scenes video. You can find us on Facebook, Pinterest, and Instagram at Menu Stories, and on Twitter, we are at Menu underscore Stories. This podcast is also available on iTunes. 
Special thanks to Yelp for providing the audio and video for this episode, and to Monica Lowe, Menu Stories contributing photographer and photo editor. I'm your host, Rebecca Goberstein, and be sure to listen to episode 50, where we get to know Chef Suzette Gresham from our panel. Until next time, happy eating. Happy eating.